Driven mofos, I wanted to mention something that means a lot to me. When I was younger, everyone doubted me and their doubts became my doubts. Their fears festered inside my mind and I hated myself as I knew I could do so much more in life. I just didn't know where to start and failure would reinforce what a loser I already believed I was. If it wasn't for listening to audios just like this, which I spent tens of thousands of dollars on, I would have probably ended it all. I know that there are so many people out there who feel this way and are holding themselves back from greatness. So if I could ask just one favor today, it would be that you share this podcast with just one person as it may make all the difference and start them on a new path. If you get emotionally attached to money, it's probably gonna keep you stuck for the rest of your life. This podcast, The Underestimated Entrepreneur, is for the driven mofos out there who are driven to achieve more in life and business. After studying 1,457 of the world's most successful people in different fields and spending over $1 million on coaches, consultants, and seminars, I wanted to share with you the key learnings, lessons, tips, tools, and strategies that have not only made them super successful, but have also allowed me to go from the kid who was put into special classes, getting kicked out of school and wanting to end my life, to becoming the mental performance coach to some of the country's most successful people and helping me to grow multiple businesses. I want to help all of those out there who have been underestimated to prove their doubt is wrong and to help them to achieve more than they could possibly imagine. I hope you enjoy. In this episode, I'm gonna be talking about how to break through some of the money blocks that most people have and also why so many people in our society get stuck financially or are gridlocked and don't know how to get out of it. Let's talk about it and let's break some of these patterns that most people have around money. Driven mofos, welcome back to another episode of The Underestimated Entrepreneur. For those of you who don't know who I am, I'm Michael Mojo, founder of Mojo Human Performance Institute and Mojo Business Multiplier. The reason why I do these episodes is that most people waste their life and I just don't want you to be one of them. Huge shout out to all of those out there who have been rating and reviewing this podcast. I really do appreciate each and every one of you. It's awesome to wake up in the morning and to see a lot of you who are sharing it on your Instagram pages and tagging me in it. It's absolutely awesome. So a massive thank you to all of you out there who are sharing this. Let's talk about money, 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 money. Now, growing up, I had a mum who was extremely tight with money. And then I had a dad who was extremely loose with money. And so I got to see both extremes of money. I also had my grandparents on my mum's side who were extremely financially savvy. And then on my dad's side, they were extreme spenders. So I was able to see what happens with money, the thoughts, the beliefs around money, and what can happen throughout life when you have it and when you don't have it. So growing up, my first real experience around money was with my dad's parents. So my grandparents, I was fortunate enough to grow up with all my grandparents and I was just able to see the huge polarity in both grandparents and the way that they lived and the way that they spent money. And so on my dad's side, they would earn money and they would spend it. So when my grandfather and grandmother used to work, they would go to work, they would get their paycheck and then they would go and buy things. So around their house, they had all these little knickknacks My grandmother would go to the shop and she would buy a whole bunch of shit that she didn't need. She would go to Target. And when she was at Target, she would buy, I don't know, clothes. She would give us clothes. And sometimes she would just say things like, what was on sale was just, how could I not buy it? It was on sale. And so she just had a way of spending money consistently. So I watched this. Now, for me growing up, I thought, how cool is this? I've got my grandparents on that side. They give us everything. So I would go to the shops with my grandparents because I knew I was going to get something while I was there. So I would convince them to buy us lollies. I would get basketball cards. I would get some coloring in books and they would spend money on us. 
So I loved going to my grandparents' house. Then my other grandparents on my mum's side were quite tight. So I always thought they were really, really poor because they never really had anything. My grandfather used to save everything that he had. So if they had a jar of Vegemite, now for those of you who are overseas, Vegemite is like a thing that we eat here in Australia that most Australians eat anyway. You can Google it and look it up. Try some if you haven't already. Most people hate it, but Australians love it. So my grandfather would save Vegemite jars or jam jars, and he would put them in the shed. If he found a nail around the house, he would go and take that nail and go and put it in a jar with a whole bunch of other nails and save it. So he had these two big sheds that were just full of shit. And they were full of shit because he kept everything. If he had a piece of wood, he would cut a little bit off and he would go put that piece of wood back in the other bit of wood in the shed and he would keep it in there. So he always had stuff lying around that they would use and reuse. So they were very frugal in the way that they used things and spent money. Now, I also knew that they had money because my other grandparents would judge them and say that they're tight, but they also had like a lot of nice furniture. Like they had this really expensive furniture and you could tell it was really, really expensive. I knew when I went over their house as a kid, my parents would say, be careful, don't run around the house, don't break anything because there's expensive stuff in the house. They would have this china and stuff like that around the house. It was sort of very confronting because I couldn't figure it out as a young kid. I didn't get it because it seemed like the grandparents that spent a lot of money on us had a lot of money, whereas the other ones that were really, really tight, I heard that they had a lot of money, but I never saw it. Even for Christmas and birthdays, they wouldn't buy us a lot. Whereas the other grandparents, they would rock up with like a half a car just full of presents for us. But then as I grew up, I started to notice that the grandparents that spent a lot of money, they actually didn't have a lot of money because when they retired, I remember my grandparents, the grandparents that spent a lot, they bought a caravan because they wanted to travel around Australia when they retired. But when they retired, I remember some of the conversations them having around not being able to go traveling because they didn't have the money to go traveling. So I remember it started to come to the surface when they retired. Then when they retired, I remember them starting to use not food stamps, but worrying about like saving two cents a liter or four cents a liter off of fuel. I remember that they were consistently criticizing people with money. So that's where I started to pick up that maybe they didn't have a lot of money. Then I started watching my other grandparents that when they retired, they started traveling. So they started traveling around the world. They would fly a lot. And so I thought, well, hang on, this is very contradictory to my original thinking. What's going on here? And over time, I started realizing that there was a mismatch of the idea of money. And then I started working. When I started working at 13, that was when I got my first job working at a service station because my parents couldn't afford basketball shoes. And I would play basketball in these really cheap shoes that felt like wearing bricks and so that hurt my feet. And I just remember mum saying like, we can't afford to buy new shoes. And so I would just wear these old shoes with holes in them. Or when we did go out and buy shoes, they were like $20 shoes, not the $150 shoes or $100 shoes that the other kids were wearing. Now, back in the day, that's what a good pair of Nikes were. I remember one of my friends had a pair of Air Jordans. And I remember going to this, I guess you could say it was like a blue light disco or something like that. I reckon I was in grade seven at school. And I remember I went over his house and he had like the full Michael Jordan tracksuit where it was like the Chicago Bulls tracksuit. He was taller than me and he had like all these pairs of Jordan shoes. And I asked him, I said, do you mind if I wear a pair of your Jordans now? Because he was a friend at the time, he lent me his Jordans and they were way too big. Like they were about two or three sizes too big. I felt like I was wearing swimming flippers when I was walking around, but I thought that it was cool that I was able to wear them. And I borrowed one of his like Michael Jordan, Chicago Bulls jackets. It didn't fit me. It was way too big. I had to pull up the sleeves. 
you know, the shoes were way too big. I looked like an idiot, but for me, it was like at the time I felt cool because my parents couldn't afford that stuff or so they told me. So when I got my first job at 13, the first thing that I did was I got paid and I went and bought a pair of basketball shoes. Then I went to school and everyone reinforced the pattern of behavior that spending money was cool. Because when I got to school, the kids were like, wow, that's cool. You got these brand new pair of Reeboks. That's sick. Reeboks were like really cool back in the day. They are still cool, especially if you can buy retros. I'm still a retro guy. I've got a sort of decent collection of Reebok pumps and Air Jordans, but that's because I never had them when I was a kid. So it reinforces pattern of behavior that when you spend money, other people think that you're cool and they validate you. So I grew up with this pattern of behavior of getting validation through spending money. So I would work really, really hard. I would spend money and then get validation from other people around my shoes or my clothes. So I would go out and buy clothes. I'd buy new jeans. I would buy, you know, nice shirts. They weren't that expensive like compared to these days, but you know, I thought that it was cool. So I just kept spending money. And then by the time I got to like 15, I bought my first car at 15 and then I built that car, but I spent a lot of money on the car. So I would work in order to spend. And that became my pattern of behavior up until probably my mid twenties. I remember making like $1,500 as a personal trainer back like 20 years ago. I remember ringing up my friends. Now there's a place in Adelaide called the Grand Hotel where we used to go on a Sunday night. And so I remember living in this bachelor pad with two other guys and I got home on a Sunday morning. I was out doing some extracurricular activities, I guess you could say. Walked in, the boys were sitting on the couch. They were still hungover and I was like, right, we need to go out tonight. I'm going to go sleep for a couple of hours and then we'll get up and we'll do some stuff and then we'll head out tonight. And they said, well, we don't have any money. And I said, that's okay. I'll shout you because I knew that I'd just made $1,500 that week. So I went out and I blew like a thousand bucks at the Grand Hotel just buying my friends drinks because they didn't have any money. And so for me, money was this vicious cycle. It was almost like this revolving door where it would come in and it would go straight out, come in and go straight out. And then even those weeks where I'd earned like 1500 bucks 20 years ago, which I mean, even today, it's still a decent paycheck, probably not as good as what it used to be, but it's still a decent paycheck. It would just go in and come straight out. Like that was my pattern of behavior. And I remember not being able to pay rent some weeks because I'd blown all my cash before rent was due. So my patterns of behavior around money were just shit. And it wasn't until I really started looking at, first of all, what was my mindset that I needed to create better wealth? And so I started reading some wealth creation books and so on. And I just remember that your mindset is essentially what creates or destroys your wealth. So that's something that's always stuck in my head. The other thing was making sure that I detached away from the idea that spending money creates validation. And I know there are a lot of people in this, like who are probably gonna listen to this episode who probably have some different ideas around money. But I go out, and let's say I take out my McLaren. When I go out, I know that there are a lot of people out there who think that I only bought the McLaren for validation, but I don't need validation anymore. I've already achieved what most people dream of. So I don't need that validation anymore by having a car like that. And it was quite confronting when I bought my first supercar because I had to go back and work on that because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't buying that car for validation, that I was buying that car for me. It was internal validation, not external. Something that you realize pretty quickly is when you have nice things, if you stand out, people will judge you and criticize you and you will also get people who validate you. So you get both. If you just buy something for validation, it's gonna be a huge wake up call when you have that nice thing and everyone gives you shit about it because you'll remember the people who give you shit because you'll notice that they hit your triggers so it'll create an emotional reaction. So that's why you've got to work through the mindset stuff. But growing up, 15, bought a car, spent all my money on the car. Then I started buying things like motorbikes. My dad and my dad's best friend, he was the Australian Junior Rally Champion. They bought a block of land up in the Riverland to race cars on and we had racetracks. I would buy cars and just take them up there and after about three or four months, they would start falling apart or we would start breaking them by 
smashing into each other and things like that. So I would just blow money on cars. And then I started going out drinking and then I'd just blow money on alcohol and drinking all the time or traveling to go and party. And so I wondered why I couldn't get ahead. And I kept thinking that if I just make more money, then I'll be able to get ahead financially. But it didn't matter how much money I made, I still ended up back in the same position. I couldn't figure out what the fuck was going on in my life because I just kept making more money and spending more money. And it wasn't until I did a lot of my deep mindset work that it really made a difference. But also understanding what money is played a huge role in getting ahead financially. And that is number one, understanding that money is an exchange of value. That's all that it is. So if you want to make more money, you've got to create more value. Full stop. You don't get paid more for no reason. I was thinking about this last night because there are a lot of people out there who are having staffing issues right now. Unemployment is going to start to go up. It's already gone up in the US. It is going to start to go up in Australia if it hasn't already. And the reason why is because there are a lot of people who go to work that think that they get paid per hour. No one gets paid per hour. Nobody. You don't get paid for time. Time is not what you get paid for. Now, some people think, well, yeah, I work an eight-hour day and I get paid for an eight-hour day. No, you don't. You get paid for what you produce in that eight-hour day. So if you are somebody who is working an eight-hour day, let's say you produce 10 widgets, and I'm just making up an idea of a widget. Let's say you produce 10 widgets in an eight-hour day. If somebody else comes along and they can produce 15 widgets of the same quality in that same eight-hour day, your employer may fire you to hire that person who does 15. And that's because businesses run on productivity and they run on output. They run on outcomes. Another example of this is like if you hire someone in marketing and you need leads, they can say, yeah, but I worked like 80 hours and you go, cool, but you didn't produce any leads. Therefore, you are worthless. So we get paid on what we produce and the outcomes that we create. If you're someone who's listening to this that is an employee and you're thinking that you get paid per hour that you go to work Monday to Friday and you get paid for these set amount of hours, I guarantee you, you do not. That is absolute ignorance. You get paid on what you produce and the value that you create for that organization. And the more value you create and the more you produce, the more valuable you are as an employee. So if one of my staff come to me and they say, you know, I've worked a 38 hour week and I've made this company $100,000 in that 38 hours, they are way more valuable than someone who in that 38 hours just sits there for 38 hours and does a lot of work. So at the end of the week, that other person might say, you know, I'm exhausted. I've worked a 38 hour week. I've been going flat out. But as a boss or as an employer, I look at what they're producing. And if I sit there and go, they've worked a 38 hour week, they're stressed out, they're burnt out, and they haven't done anything. They actually haven't produced any outcomes. Then I'm thinking it's time to get rid of that person because they're a non-performing member of the organization. And a lot of staff get pissed at this because I'll say things like, but you don't understand how hard I'm working. If you're working hard and you're not productive and producing good quality outcome or something that generates an income, then it just shows that you're really shit at your job. Like if I run, I'm not a good runner, but if I run for, let's say 24 hours, if I run for 24 hours, I might do, let's say 40 Ks, 40 kilometers. This is just an example. Let's say I might do 40 kilometers in 24 hours. Now, if you're a professional runner, you might be able to run 200 kilometers in that same time. And I'm just making this up because some of you who probably are aware of how far you can run in those times will probably listen to this and go, this guy's a clown. I'm just making stuff up. The thing is, who's more productive in that time? If I'm shit at running, I can feel like I'm running just as hard and putting out as much energy as that professional runner. But the professional runner is more efficient. They're more effective. They're better skilled. They're better trained. And so because of that, they just outperform everybody else. In a job role, if you're getting outperformed by other people and they're working 38 hours and they're producing 10 times more than you, they're way more valuable to an organization. And an organization has to provide value. Like if you go to a bank 
they provide a value through a product and service. If you can't deliver that product or service, then you wouldn't use a bank. Now, as a staff member, you're essentially someone who works for an organization that's part of a team that produces an outcome. If you can't produce that outcome, then your employment probably won't last for long. Now, we've just gone through a cycle where a lot of businesses hired in very stupid ways because they grew way too quickly. And when an organization grows quickly, they're normally inefficient, ineffective because there's a lot of money in the economy. So they will hire non-productive members for their team and they're able to get away with it because they just need work done. The problem with that though is that after a while it becomes non-profitable or it squeezes profits and profits allow for business growth. So if profits are getting squeezed, then the business isn't growing essentially and it's an organism within itself with a whole bunch of team members. Essentially, every team member is a cell within the organism, just like our body. If we have non-performing cells, those cells become cancerous. Now, if you've got cancerous people in your organization, they're just as destructive as cancerous cells in your body and the immune system has to attack them and get rid of them. Now, that same thing will happen within an organization. If there are cells or pockets or groups of people who aren't working effectively within an organization, they become cancerous to the productivity of that organization. So therefore, the immune system or the management come in or the leadership and they get rid of them in order to create healthy new cells because everything has to grow or if not, it dies. Get ready business owners that make under a million dollars per year. I'm getting ready to launch my brand new online dominate zero to a million dollars business hub with the goal of giving small business owners what they need to grow their business past their first million dollars with the tips, the tools, the processes, the frameworks, and the trainings to scale their business past the first million dollars without wasting years and millions of dollars like I did with all the trials, errors, and mistakes that cost me. This will give those of you out there wanting to make your first million dollars the fast track to scaling your business. Stay tuned for the launch. Now, when it comes to money and we think about money, most people don't really think about money as being an exchange of value. So therefore, they're not thinking about what they need to produce to create value throughout the day. And that's a huge toxic problem within our society, especially in Australia and America, that most people just relate their work to time instead of the outcomes that they produce. Again, if you've got someone who's working 38 hours and at the end of the week, you pay them a paycheck, let's say you pay them $2,000 for a 38 hour week and they've only done half a job. That's not really acceptable. It's not really good and that workload needs to be negotiated or they need better tools or better resources to be able to perform effectively. Maybe they have shitty management. Maybe they have shitty leadership. Maybe they work for a shit organization, but maybe they're a shitty employee as well. You know, if you pay someone $2,000 to put down your concrete driveway or let's say $10,000 to put down a concrete driveway, they don't get halfway through and go, we've worked a 38 hour week or we've worked our hours and then just leave. They get paid to put down the driveway because that's essentially what they're getting paid to do. So if you think about your job role as being getting paid to achieve an outcome and you do that outcome well and you've got effective leadership, effective management, and you're getting given the right tools to be able to do your job, then you should be able to perform really, really well and you do your job. If you haven't achieved your outcomes within that 38 hours, then you probably want to stay back and get it done. But if you're working late and you're not achieving the outcome, it's probably because you crap at your job or you're not given the tools or the organization is shit. I mean, there's a couple of different reasons but you have to look into that, especially if you're a leader or a manager. The other thing around money though as well that most people don't understand is that money is just numbers on a screen. That's it. Now, back in the old days, most people used to think that money was this physical, tangible object. Now, maybe that might've been the case in the gold era where we used to carry around gold coins. And if you wanted to pay for something, you had to scrape off the amount of gold off of a gold coin and it would be measured and weighed and that would be worth the amount. Over time, we've moved away from carrying around gold and we used paper. Now, essentially, paper money was an IOU to the bank. So let's say I have a million dollars. I actually own a million dollars worth of gold. 
I go and then put my million dollars worth of gold in the bank and the bank give me a million dollars worth of paper, which essentially is an IOU, which is directly related to the amount of gold that I have in a bank. This was called the gold standard. Let's say a country, and I'm just gonna use round numbers. Let's say a country had a billion dollars, like Australia had a billion dollars. They would have a billion dollars worth of gold sitting in a vault somewhere. Then what they would do is they would issue this paper money into the economy. That paper money essentially was an IOU for that gold. So that was called the gold standard. So every dollar was essentially related to a dollar of gold sitting in a vault somewhere. But America broke away from the gold standard in the 70s sometime. I think it was the 70s or around about the 70s. I'll have to get the exact year for you, but it was around about the 70s anyway. And then so we just had paper money. That paper money essentially became worthless because it wasn't attached to anything. I couldn't go to the bank and pull out my gold. So if I'm a millionaire now, I can't walk into a bank and pull out a million dollars worth of gold that I own. The bank doesn't have any money. The bank doesn't have any gold. In fact, Jess only recently took around $10,000 to the bank and they asked her to come back because they were unable to accept the $10,000 for whatever reason. Because most of the time, banks don't really keep a lot of money on hand. It's all just digital transfers. It's numbers. So first of all, if I walk into a bank right now and say, I want to take out, if I've got $100,000 in the bank and I buy a car and I want to pay cash for it, in most banks, not all banks, but if I walk into most banks and ask for $25,000 out of my own bank account, they normally don't have it. They'll ask you to come back in a couple of hours or even a couple of days because they need to bring that money in in paper money and give it to you. They normally don't even have it sitting in the bank. So bank is just a bunch of numbers. And it was only the other day I was listening to a bunch of economists talking and heads of banks and heads of the banking sector. I think it was part of a documentary or whatever. But they essentially call money an electronic journal entry. When they're adding more money into the economy, you would have heard of this term inflation. And that means that the price of everything goes up. It inflates, it goes up. And it goes up because normally there's more money in the economy. And there's more money into the economy because either banks put in more money into the economy, the government or the Federal Reserve. And so they'll put more money into the economy to stimulate the economy because it entices more spending. So when more money is put into the economy, more people spend. When more people spend, inflation starts to go up. So if I've got milk and I've only got 10 cartons of milk, but I've got 100 people who want that milk, I can put up the price to try and slow down demand a little bit. But what will happen is over time, things start to get more and more expensive because of the price of everything keeps going up in order to deal with the demand. Like if there is not enough houses on the market, yet I want to live somewhere and I'm a millionaire, and I'm standing next to someone who's not a millionaire. I need a house, they need a house. So what I'm gonna do is at an auction, I'm gonna bid higher than what they're gonna bid in order to put my family in a house. So essentially the price of that house is gonna inflate because I will outbid them based on the amount of money that I have. So housing prices start to go up through this idea of inflation. So the more money in the economy, the more money normally is printed or is created through this idea of an electronic journal entry, where the Federal Reserve or the government add a bunch of zeros onto the amount of money that they say that's in the economy. But it's not paper money, it's just numbers on a screen. So they just add a couple of numbers to the screen. That's called an electronic journal entry. Now we have more money in the economy. Then the government gives stimulus packages, so they might stimulate the economy through certain ways. They might say, we're going to give more money into lower value housing, so that they then start to write checks to builders to build more houses for people that don't have a lot of money. But now we've got this stimulation going on through the economy where there's more money. Because there's more money, there's more spending. Because there's more spending, if I want to go and buy milk and there's only 10 milk cartons and old mate next to me says, well, I'll pay a dollar. I need milk for my family. I'll say I'll pay a dollar 10. So now the price of that milk has just gone to a dollar 10. Next week I come back and old mate next to me has got a pay rise. So he's prepared to pay a dollar 10. I come back and I go, well, I'll pay a dollar 50. 
So now the price of milk goes up again. This is what we call inflation. And so the price of everything starts going up. When this happens, the government and the Federal Reserve go, shit, this is becoming too hot. So the market's becoming too hot. So what they have to do is they have got to try and slow it down because you don't want to go and buy milk for $10,000. Now, if I get paid at the end of the week, the boss doesn't want to pay me $10 million, which is just a standard paycheck because everything has gone up and the idea of money has become a lot less valuable. So if you go to countries like Zimbabwe, from my understanding, you can get a million dollar note. And the reason why is because their money is so worthless. Even if you go to countries like Bali, you can go over there and you get, you know, 50,000 baht, I think it is. That's $5 Australian. So it's for every $1, I believe that it's like 10,000 or 1,000 or something like that. So that idea of money is a lot more. Now, if we've got to carry around these wads of cash in order just to be able to buy milk, that's because inflation is so high that money essentially is worthless. You know, it's so you've got to have million dollar bills and things like that. So the government try and slow this idea of inflation down. And when they do that, they start cutting spending. They put up interest rates. So now money becomes a lot slower in the economy. So interest rates essentially go up to slow inflation. And the Federal Reserve and the government are always trying to look at how do we keep inflation stable, but also as well, we want to have growth stable as well. So they want the country to grow. But if it grows too quick, inflation goes up too quick. And then everything's got to try and catch up. Like if milk goes up to $10 a litre, then staff are going to want to get paid more, which then means now I've got to put up my prices. Then, you know, someone else puts up their price of something. And so the economy just becomes too crazy too quickly. It just can't keep up. Like you would have to essentially do pay raises every week for staff if inflation just kept going up. So the government has to try to regulate that. And they do that by increasing interest rates or decreasing interest rates, which means the price of money becomes more or less. When they want to stimulate the economy, they lower interest rates, which then means money is more cheap. So if I want to buy a car, I can buy a car at 1% interest. I don't have to pay a lot more money, which means I keep a lot more money. If I keep a lot more money, I spend a lot more money. If I spend a lot more money, my purchasing power is stronger. Whereas when interest rates are high, instead of going out and buying a $30,000 car, I think, shit, I don't know whether it's worth it because if I've got to pay 10% interest, that's a lot of extra money that I'm paying for the car now. It's not worth it and I start to get squeezed. I can't afford it. So because I can't afford it, then I don't buy the new car because I've got to buy milk now and milk's $1.50 instead of a dollar. The idea of money going up and going down through interest rates, the government and the Federal Reserve do that to try and stabilize the economy. Now, when you don't have that, and I know there are a lot of people out there who criticize the Federal Reserve and they criticize the government for interest rates and so on. But if you don't do that, you have a situation like Bitcoin. If we go back to crypto, back when crypto was just peaking, if I go and buy a coffee today at a dollar, a dollar essentially in cryptocurrency, like let's say it's Bitcoin, if my US dollar is now, I can go and buy one coffee for that in crypto. Imagine tomorrow when I go back and now it's $50. So $1 is now worth $50 in cryptocurrency, but I'm buying it with crypto. That coffee is now worth 50 bucks. And then tomorrow it might be worth 25. And then the day after it might be worth $3. And then the day after it might be worth $8. And then the day after it might be worth $16. Then the day after it's $150. It's too unstable. And because of that instability in the economy, People don't know what to do. Like most people are so driven by stability and certainty, you cannot have the price of everything changing so rapidly because if it does, people don't know what to do. So the government have to create some sort of a balance where things can either go up or go down very, very slowly over a period of time so that then people get used to that thing. You know, like fuel prices, if fuel prices go up by 10 cents a liter, people freak out for a week or two and then they just go, or maybe even a month, that's just part of how they operate. And so they're used to it. So the government have to use interest rates 
to sort of try and stabilize the economy. If not, everything goes too crazy. People end up doing stupid shit. Most people don't know what to do and it just creates too much instability within the economy. Then you'll probably have rioting, all of that sort of stuff. So that's what happens. But when we're thinking about money, if we just think about money as an exchange of value and also that these days when we're talking about money, the government in order to stimulate the economy do an electronic journal entry. That's all that it is. They are adding numbers to a screen and that is it. So they just create money out of thin air. It's nothing. It's just an exchange of value. That's all that it is. So when people get emotionally attached to this idea of money all the time and they're like, you know, money's bad, money's wrong, rich people are assholes, it's completely irrelevant. To me, it's like a form of racism, right? Where if you're judging people on race and yes, there are certain demographics and so on have certain behavioral traits or certain ways of thinking. Groups of people always do when they start to identify as a group, they will have certain ways of thinking and certain beliefs. So you're going to have certain characteristics with different cultures and so on, but that doesn't mean that they don't work hard or they don't work certain ways. They're just generalizations or assumptions that people make, which is essentially is racist. People do the same thing with money where they go, rich people are assholes. So when I get more money, that just automatically turns me into an asshole. And when you ask people that question, they're like, well, no, not really. It confuses them. But that's because they're not thinking. Well, that person's just born rich. And I go, okay, cool. So if someone's got something nice and they're born into wealth, that means their parents must have made money. Is that correct? Well, maybe their parents had money. And I'm like, there's the third generation curse. If you understand wealth, Normally, there's something called the third generation curse. And that means that the first generation worked their asses off to achieve something. The second generations are a bit more relaxed because their parents don't want their kids to work as hard as what they did. So they give a little bit more to the kids, but there's still accountabilities on that second generation. So the second generation normally have a lot of pressure to perform. They actually have a lot of pressure on high expectations from their parents to not lose the money. But the third generation, normally their parents don't want the third generation. So this is the second generation to the third generation. The second generation don't want the third generation to take on all of that extra pressure and guilt around the money. So they normally relax even more. So there's something called the third generation curse, which is that most families will lose all their money within three generations. So it'll just go back to being however it is and they'll just be part of the average. So normally if there's a third generation curse on average, that means that most people who have money normally have made it within the first or the second generation. So when there are people out there who say, oh, they probably just inherited the money or they probably got rich parents. If they've got rich parents, it means that their parents are normally first generation income earners or first generation wealth creators. It's either the first or the second generation who created the wealth in most cases. There are different exceptions to that rule. Like if I look at my family, my grandparents on my mum's side are financially independent, but they were poor. My mum grew up poor and my dad grew up poor as well. When I say poor, I don't mean like absolute poverty, but I mean Australian low income earner, low class. So my grandfather's dad died when he was 14 or 13 and he became man of the house because his mum didn't work. And so he went out and got his first job at 13 and quit school. And then he ended up becoming a high level executive at a large power network here in South Australia. And by doing so, he saved a lot of money. So he was very tight and frugal with his money. But by the age of 50, he retired and lived off of shares. And my grandmother still lives off of shares. She's in her mid 80s. And she still trades the share market every day. Well, she doesn't trade. She listens to the share market every day. And over time, she will buy and sell shares or get dividends. And so she still travels around the world. She's an amazing woman. But they were essentially not well off at all. When my mum grew up, my mum and her brothers and sisters, they grew up in essentially a three-bedroom house. My grandparents had a room. My mum shared a room with her sister. And my two uncles shared a room together. So they were brothers. So they lived in a three bedroom house with four kids. And so my grandparents had a room and the boys had a room and the girls had a room and that was it. 
And it was a very small house that they lived in because they didn't have a lot of money. So my mum essentially grew up in lower class as well. The only thing that my grandparents spent money on was putting them through a good school. And then when I grew up, my mum fell pregnant with me at 17 years of age. And my dad was 19. And my dad always worked two jobs. Inflation was high at the time as well. So I grew up almost living poor. The only thing that my parents spent a lot of money on was my schooling, mine and my sister's. So pretty much everything went into schooling and just having the house that we lived in. But food was tight. You know, we very rarely ate chocolate or had any takeaway, like takeaway was a special occasion because we just couldn't afford it. So we had three generations of essentially growing up in lower class. But over time, it's been really interesting because my grandparents then became financially independent. My parents became financially independent by working hard and saving money and being frugal with their money. And then also I'm well on the way to financial independence as well with Jess. So we've had three generations of not being given money, but almost three generations of financial independence from coming from lower class, which is quite extraordinary, I think, because I don't think it happens that way quite a lot, but it has in our family. Anyway, the point that I'm trying to make is that money is this crazy idea that most people don't really understand. And because of it, it keeps them trapped for the majority of their life. When you understand that money is just created out of thin air, these days it's an electronics fund transfer that happens just by banks or the Federal Reserve or the government's adding zeros to a screen, and now there's more money in the economy. And then they stimulate it by giving out money to certain organizations or through certain schemes, and then now all of a sudden there's more money in the economy. But what you'll find is that most of the time anyway, money flows through the economy back into the hands of the wealthy because the wealthy create value. So if you have a look at during COVID, the government in the US and Australia and around the world stimulated the economy. So they essentially lowered interest rates, gave more money out through different schemes and so on. They go out into the economy, and then people went out and there were certain benefits and so on that were given to different income earners or different employees. But if you have a look at the same time, Amazon shares went through the roof and they went through the roof because most people got their money and then they just went straight out and blew it on Amazon. And so Jeff Bezos got more rich anyway. So the money flows through the economy from those who are spenders to those who are creators. So creators normally make the most amount of money in the economy. If you want to make more money, create more value because the more value you create, the more money you end up with. So someone like Jeff Bezos or Apple, like Tim Cook from Apple, Apple are creating more products and services. They're adding value to the economy. You've got something like Amazon and with Jeff Bezos, he has created a massively valuable organization where people can go on online shop. And you've got all these other amazing organizations out there that are creating huge amounts of value for society. Yet when most people get their paycheck, they go out and spend their money again and they give it back to the creators who then use that money to create more stuff and that more stuff then means that they create more money. So normally the creators in the world end up making the most amount of money because they understand that the more you create and the more value you create, the more money you make. So it's a great little tip for those of you out there who are trying to get ahead financially. Money very rarely ends up in the hands of people just for no reason. You've got to get out there and create value. Anyway, Driven Mofos, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please remember to subscribe if you haven't already to this channel. Have a great day. Keep kicking massive goals. And I really appreciate each and every one of you being part of this Driven Mofo community. Take care, everybody. Have a great day. And I look forward to you joining me back here once again for another episode of The Underestimated Entrepreneur.